Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, as always, I am your your sort of raconteur, Adam Lowther. And uh, with me, I have, as always, Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin. And then today we have a very special guest that is, of course, Jeff Larson. Now, many of you know Jeff. He is a, he's a legend. He's a legend among men. He's written uh, a couple of books that I actually personally really like, one on low-yield nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear use, and then a recent one on NC3. So welcome into the nuclear view. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, Curtis, Jim, glad to be back. Now, this, this week, we've got a bunch to talk about because the Russians, the Belarusians, and then, of course, we, the Americans, are deeply ensconced in an effort to signal to each other just how much we want to, you know, we mean b- business. And, of course, I'm talking about uh, the movement of nuclear weapons from Russia to Belarus. And then, of course, the United States sent the USS Gerald R. Ford to Oslo, which we haven't done in, you know, I think it's the first time yeah, ever, ever we've sent a carrier there. <laughs> so with that, Jeff, uh, let me open it up with you and get your take on this battle to signal and to show just how serious each of us are. How do you see it? Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I don't have a lot of formal comments to start out, but, you know, signaling has been with us through uh, throughout the nuclear age. Uh, it was commonly done in the Cold War. It's really the, the whole basis of NATO's nuclear uh, responsibilities and strategies. And uh, we've done it in a number of ways, exercises, shows of force, uh, port calls like, like we saw this week in Oslo. Uh, by the way, this may have been the first time a supercarrier went into Oslo, mm-hmm. but Four years ago, I was in Oslo in the fall of 2018 uh, doing some research. And I, walking back to my hotel that night through the fog, there was an aircraft carrier sitting there that wasn't there in the afternoon when I walked by. That was um, uh, the Guam. It was one of the smaller, the marine uh, mini carriers, right. if you will. Uh, so we've been there before, but this was a, a significant uh, moment when, when the Ford showed up. And we've been hearing, uh, I think just recently, the president announced that we're going to be doing port calls with SSBNs in South Korea. Uh, We never used to say where SSBNs were ever, except when they were in New London or Charleston or Bangor. But uh, now we're starting to uh, pop those up every now and then as well. So these are important means of not only signaling to a potential adversary, but of letting our allies know that we are there, that we're deeply committed to the, uh, to the agreements we've made with them and to extended deterrence. And uh, during the Cold War, we had other ways of signaling, if you will. Back when I was on alert in the early, late 70s, early 80s, 
they introduced the Schlesinger Doctrine, for example, which was, uh, for those of our listeners who may not recall, uh, an effort to provide different levels of responses and getting away from massive retaliation and a single PSYOP that would, uh, you know, spasm launch of everything we had. So we introduced things like limited nuclear options, select attack options, regional options, all kinds of uh, different variations, less than an all-out response. Uh, but as one analyst has written, you know, nuclear weapons are pretty blunt instruments for sending signals, especially if you're using them. Now, if we're deploying them, using them, not in a military fashion, but to actually to send some kind of a signal, uh, I think they've been very effective. So the fact that Russia is now trying to do it, on the one hand, it shows, since they've never done this before, uh, and I'll caveat that in a moment, but this shows that they're getting a little desperate given the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but it also shouldn't be too surprising that they're modeling what they're doing after what we've successfully done for the last 50 years, just like their escalate to de-escalate policy. Um, you know, it seems scary and new, but it's fact they're just mimicking what NATO has had as their strategy for the last four to five decades. Um, the caveat on what I just said is that, of course, Russia always had weapons in Belarus during the Cold War because Belarus was part of the Soviet Union. So in, in a sense, they're just returning them, but it still carries significant geopolitical implications when they do something like that because Belarus now is a sovereign, supposedly independent nation, and for them to accept the, uh, uh, the presence of Russian nuclear weapons on their soil sends a strong message to their neighbors, most of whom are in NATO. So I think I'll stop there on my rambling and turn it over to my colleagues to follow up. Thanks. Yeah, Curtis, so what did you think specifically about Lukashenko's you know, idea that, hey, everybody, just come join us. If you join us, nukes for everybody. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, again, thanks I, for all. And Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm already I taking notes. Um, l let me say that um, that is the most interesting thing about the Belarusian uh, sort of position on this. It's like, hey, if you join our union, you know, you'll get nukes too, uh, which is, I'm not quite sure that's what, Putin had in mind, but, uh, but it is interesting, uh, the uh, willingness to proliferate so quickly, um, uh, and so wantonly in that sense. I think though, that, uh, uh, the other part of this, you know, is, is, um, is a Putin signal. It's a different method of escalation, right? So he's signaling escalation by saying, I'm now going to include, I'm now going to nuclear arm my closest ally. And, uh, and do some of the things that you, NATO, seem to be comfortable doing. And, uh, and so it's a way of, of um, escalating in the rhetoric, if you will, without actually escalating in the war. Uh, and, and that's what's very interesting about this form of signaling. Yeah. Yeah. Jim? Yeah. yeah. Any thoughts? Well, I do have some. First of all, uh, likewise, uh, Jeff, thank you for joining our podcast and for all that you do for the community. Uh, very important. And second of all, when Adam gave his introduction, I almost thought he was going to say he he is the humble something or another. So I'm glad you bit your tongue on that one there, Adam. So re regarding, regarding the signaling, though, and uh, – 
you know, one of the things I think is really uh, interesting in all of this is, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll use my my Reagan. There you go again, Putin, using your nuclear weapons, because what what we see in the signaling is we're we're basically it, it seems like his signaling by saying I'll proliferate with my nuclear weapons if you keep getting in my way. And we have to have a good response for that if we don't want that proliferation to happen. Now, quite honestly, I'm sort of on the, you know, for those that have read the, uh, what is it, Walt Sagan's uh, uh, book on the spread of nuclear weapons. Right. I'm sure to, uh, who's it? Uh, 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 Sagan and Waltz, yeah. Uh, and if you haven't read that, the spread of nuclear weapons book, I recommend people are, are in our audience read it. But, you know, there's two different views, you know, no nuclear weapons and everyone has them. And uh, it looks like Putin's making that call going, well, let's just have everyone have them. Well, What's our response to that? You know, I, I'm game. Yeah, maybe everyone should have one. We talked in the previous cast about South Korea. Uh, I think uh, there's an option. Um, you know, uh, we, we've got other countries that might have an interest in, in, in developing. Is that the way we want to play this out? Or do we want to come back to the table and look at real world order and begin to come up with a, an assemblance of a deterrent that keeps us at peace and begins to move on progress. And I just don't see this as progress. And so that that's my first shot out, out of here. Uh, the second piece is uh, with regard to the, uh, uh, the USS Gerald Ford, but also, uh, also if you look at what we're doing in our telegraphing or our signaling is sending, you know, F-35s into, uh, you know, into uh, this Northern uh, warfare uh uh, training exercise. I think that's a clear signal that we are not we are not afraid to show that we have the might to do it. Whether we have the will to do it, that's a different question. But at least we have the might to do it in joint exercises. Uh, comments? I tell you, uh, I think this is a lot like. So j- earlier today, I just bought a new pair of Reebok pumps. Now, I don't know if you remember Reebok pumps from the 80s, but if you couldn't afford Air Jordans, you got Reebok pumps. My wife just bought a new that pair of the, pumps, too. Oh, different <laughs> shoes, I guess. But it, but it's kind of, follow my analogy here, Reebok pumps are like all the rage now because they're the, they're the new competitor to Air Jordans. Air Jordans have been around and they're, you know, like I, I was talking to Abby and I said, what do you want for your birthday, Abby? And she said Air, some Air this specific Air Jordan. And so I had her show me on, you know, on eBay and they were $1,600 for a pair of shoes. And I'm like, I don't think that's the one I'm buying yet. But, but my point is, is that Reebok pumps are back. And so this kind of signaling and the, these kinds of strategies are like Reebok pumps where they were around and they existed for a while. Then they sort of disappeared. I was, I'm reading a Rod Lyon article right now on assurance that's from 2013 and in it he's like hey you know all these nuke folks they're sort of out of the you know they're out of the business now because nukes are on their way out and you know this is just it's not it's not what we have to worry about we got to worry about terrorism and then of course 10 years later here we are and all those terrorism guys are now trying to either become cyber guys or nuke guys and so you know it what was what was new was old and now it's new again and so that's sort of to me where we are in this whole thing now now jeff i I think you were about to jump in 
Well, I was going to, uh, I liked your comment. And yeah, 2013 is when I showed up at uh, the NATO Defense College. And one of the first things I wanted to do was support the NATO uh, nuclear policy directorate by holding a, an, at least an annual workshop on deterrence. And we did, but I got a lot of pushback from my dean, who was from Eastern Europe, and had that same attitude. You know, these things are going, they're, the, they're, they're going away. Nuclear matters don't matter anymore. Um, and, you know, we had a president at the time who had been pushing for disarmament. And in 2013, you remember the new WEP came out and said we can cut by another third. Um, I was surprised, honestly, when the 2010 Nuclear Posture Review came out and did not eliminate the remaining U.S. nuclear warheads stationed in Europe. I really thought that might be in that document. Um, I think it was some of the people like the DASDI at the time, who we all know, who was, uh, you know, provided some common sense to make sure that didn't happen. But yeah, big turnaround. And so I was able to, I was in NATO for almost the next five years and watched this transition from, um, from a, a, an alliance that was still reaping the benefits of the peace dividend after the Cold War and was focused on the away game and expeditionary forces, was eliminating all of their heavy uh, forces, didn't see any much, much use for nuclear weapons. Uh, which were strictly used for political signaling. The fact that we had them at all in NATO, they were weapons. They, they weren't weapons of last resort, but they were political weapons that weren't aimed at anybody. We had no plans, uh, no targeting. They eviscerated the planning staff at shape. Um, so these things were just kind of there, but they didn't mean much. They were just the ultimate security guarantee if we ever needed them. Well, I think in the last few years that has changed. Uh, there haven't been many changes in terms of numbers or, or locations, as far as we know. Sorry, it's a big jet taking off right over my head. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, but uh, the allies are now once again remembering why we have nuclear weapons, why we have them in NATO, why NATO has nuclear risk and burden sharing, and why some countries actually have missions to support the potential use of these things if it ever came to it. So this has been a, a major change since, I would say, the, uh, the Maidan Revolution and the, the uh, annexation of Crimea. And it's, it's been just a continuing downward spiral in relationships with the East, but continuing enhanced cohesion and understanding of the mission by NATO itself. So uh, that's way off track of what I was going to say. What I was going to say... Uh, in answer to James is not only are we sending F-35s up north, but we've been sending B-52s and other bombers, but especially the buffs, into Europe since about 2014 or so regularly. Uh, and I recall when this first happened that the new DASD for nuclear weapons was really at a, at a workshop I was attending in Europe. We were actually in Poland and she was there and was surprised to hear that B-52s had just uh, flown into Estonia and dropped iron bombs as a, as a signal, because this was a pre-planned Air Force operation and nobody bothered to remind uh, OSD that they were going to go ahead and do it. Um, so it was, yeah. I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> Things happen, uh, apparently. Who, who was signaling who? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who was singling whom? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, 
It was an effective signal, though, the fact that we did fly B-52s into the Baltics as part of an air operation. Um, and now we're doing it pretty rare. This is before we had troops there, before the enhanced European, pres- European uh, presence. So uh, one of the first signals we sent was with nuclear-capable weapons. Uh, anyhow. Yeah. And I think Curtis. they were effective in at least calming down some of the folks in the Kremlin at the time. Maybe. Yeah. And I think we just had this recently. There's just uh, a B-1 that flew over, uh, was it Bosnia and Serbia, to sort of calm things down over there uh, in a messaging uh, or signaling event. Uh, you know, to Jeff's point, you know, um, uh, you know, there has been a sea change, uh, to, uh, you know, a nod to our Navy brethren, um, of, um, you know, of nuclear um, awareness and um, um, risk um uh, knowledge, appetite, whatever you want to call it. And, and I think this is interesting, uh, which kind of makes uh, uh, Putin sort of the greatest salesman for the nuclear enterprise. Uh, he may be the sole, per, uh, the sole savior of America's nuclear arsenal um, in, in, in some, uh, some degree. Um, but there are other forms of signaling uh, that I think that are important. And, and we're having um, one of the biggest forms of signaling going on in America right now. And that is, uh, you know, nations tend to fund what they find most important, right? And so when we see how funding goes and how much you spend on uh, on defense, um, on uh, nuclear enterprise, on your health, on your education, whatever it is, uh, can tend to sort of show the rest of the world what you as a nation uh, value most. And I think that uh, as we wrestle through uh, uh, nuclear modernization and some of these other questions. And while we're, you know, facing another uh, debt, uh, you know, debt uh, um, argument here in Congress and, and these sorts of things, there we still uh, have these same fights about: Are we spending enough or are we spending too much? But funding is is important uh, in the way that we message because if we don't fund things properly, we might miscommunicate to the adversary what we value most and what they should perhaps fear most. Yeah, Jim. No. And, and you know, that the whole funding issue is another piece of this. And in fact, not only the, the funding of, you know, the military itself, but all the, the forethinking that goes into, you know, the technology and the research and the advancements that we want to do to stay ahead of our adversaries. That's a piece we've talked about before. And it gets lost sometimes, I think, in times like this where you're, you know, at least in times like this that we're discussing, in which we're looking at military movements. But remember, none of these things happen in a vacuum. You know, and, and you know, you look at, again, you know, this, this promise on the Russian side of saying, well, we're promising weapons for everybody, you know, that joins us. Well, those weapons just don't come out of nowhere. They've been developed. They've been planning. They've been orchestrated and managed. And you have to have a plan to do that. You know, you can't, I, I couldn't say today, uh, today, anyone that joins me, I'm going to give them, uh, I'm going to give them two years of corn because my corn hasn't grown yet. I have to plan it and wait till it gets out of the ground. And, and there's a time scale on that, which requires the planning and the foresight necessary to do that. And to Curtis's view, that's a piece of that signaling that comes long term. But these short term things that we see happening right now, I think are valuable for us to see the end results of that and remind us that that, that comes at a cost. 
Let me ask you, Jeff, there was, and then maybe Curtis, you can chime in as well. When the Russian embassy in Oslo essentially, you know, said, Hey, this having to forward into the port of Oslo is, this is escalatory. This is, this is, you know, they signaled that, that it was akin to, you know, war, you know, the, the sort of bellicose and outlandish explanations and, you know, protestations. And I'm sort of curious why they took this perspective because this is a NATO member, you know, it's a, it's two NATO members, one NATO member having another ship go to a, a NATO member. So why, why at this point have this strong of a reaction to me, it was, it, it just didn't resonate. Jeff, any thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah, I think it's, it's because in part, um, well, Russia borders Norway, uh, I mean, way up there, but still for many years, it was the only NATO ally that Russia bordered. And, um, I guess not the, there were probably a few years. It was the only one. And Russia is uh, trying to rebuild its submarine force. They are, you know, sniffing around at undersea infrastructure in the North Atlantic. Um, They still have their bastion just north of Norway for submarine operations. Uh, So for a lot of reasons, I think Norway... uh, has just in the last decade or so, I mean, maybe longer, Norway has played a key role in Russian thinking because, you know, when you look at a Mercator map, they don't look that close. But if you look at the map the way those of us who grew up flying did, you know, it's a polar projection. And Norway is pretty darn close and touches on a lot of key geographic areas that Russia worries about. A few years ago, you may recall, I think it was 2017, there was a NATO... uh, naval exercise going on in the North Sea, the Norwegian Sea off the coast of Norway. And Russia sailed some ships in there and started firing missiles off for uh, practice and right in the middle of a NATO exercise. Well, that's a pretty strong signal too. Uh, I think the only signal they were sending is, you know, we're trying to be bullies and we're doing outlandish things. And we can, you know, if you think that's stupid, wait till you see our next move. Um, (laughs) But they are known to do that sort of thing. So uh, I think it's the it, it's related to the high north and Norway's strategic position, which looks more strategic to Russia than it does maybe to us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll add to those great comments, Jeff. I, I think, uh, well, first of all, I think Russia's jealous that we can actually move a carrier around on its own without a bunch of tugs behind it uh, and uh, and so forth. But uh, I, I, I just kid. Um but I, I think to your point, the Arctic strategy is is something that um, uh, Russia is extremely concerned with. And uh, anytime they see new capability that places anything they have at risk up there, they're gonna they're gonna complain. It's what they do. They complain. They gripe and complain. And and uh, you know this is the same thing about you know America's um, uh, ballistic missile defense is. Uh, is placed at risk our ability to, you know, for, to hold mutual, you, you've placed our deterrent at risk. And while, you know, not never peeping a word about their own ballistic missile defense, right? Um, and, and this is pretty common because over the years, America has allowed this to happen uh, because we tolerate so much of this bad behavior from the Russians. For example, 
Um, it is, uh, you know, Congress's position on the long-range strike option, the replacement for the air-launched cruise missile. Uh, that is, we didn't need that, that that should not be something we should uh, have. It's a war fighting, a nuclear war fighting weapon. It's destabilizing. Uh, oh, but uh, Russia has a bunch of those kinds of weapons. Ah, that's okay. I mean, that's been the per- sort of the example of American uh, diplomacy, um, you know, s- uh, at least since the 70s, which is, yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a big deal if they have it. It's only a big deal if we have it. Um, and uh, we had the same argument in the, with the MX missile in the, in the 80s under Reagan. It was that that would be a destabilizing weapon system, even though they had capabilities that would, were equal to it. And that was fine. So uh, this ability, uh, this projection of how we behave in, in messaging um, is it's schizophrenic to that, to the uh, to the foes and well, maybe to the friends alike. And because we're not consistent or persistent in the way that we do things. And so we sort of, to use Jeff's word, he says spasm in the nuclear war. That's a very technical Kantian term. But the reality is, is that we spasm in the way we message. And we're all in on one day and we got jets flying all over little Bosnia uh, or along the DMZ. And then the next day we're ignoring, you know, the, the deaths of hundreds or thousands of people in a small country and some other part of the world. And it's just we're just inconsistent. That's the way the world sees us. So so they like to find ways to poke holes at us and complain. We don't care. We floated a, a boat into into a NATO ally. There's nothing wrong with that. And um, and that's what the Russians are going to have to deal with. Yeah, it, I think another piece of this, though, the, especially, in, in, and I brought it up about this Nordic exercise, but I think it's important also, at least my view, having been in the Army, fighting in the Arctic, it always has been sort of Russia's big thing. Russia is the, you know, they, they wait for the weather. They, they fight when the, you know, the ground is frozen and solid. Yeah, that's the way you fight the ground war. And in some ways, I think this is sort of a, a nice stick in the face saying, we can fight in the we can fight in the Arctic too, and we can do it well with allies that know how to do it. Because the Nordic fighters, they know how to do it well, so that's yeah. important. And with the addition of Sweden, that just uh, sort of uh, makes things a little harder for uh, for the you know, the Russian disposition on all this. Absolutely, Jeff. Yeah. You- I, I had a comment about uh, the nuke, nukes for all by. Uh, Lukashenko, uh, he's kind of a wild card, and I, I didn't read in this article that that uh, maybe I missed it that Putin himself made that kind of comment. Uh, I mean, Belarus has he, he's towing the line with what Russia wants him to do, but he's made some outlandish statements in the last couple of years as well that maybe weren't approved in the Kremlin. So this may be. Uh, more public than Moscow really wanted it to be. I mean, yeah. I'm giving some credit to the strategic thinkers in the Kremlin. Uh, maybe they well, don't deserve, but in terms of you know nuclear deterrence, it, it's been a fairly stable relationship, and we don't like to surprise one another too much. So may- neither of this is, as you suggest, a kind of a radical departure. Uh, for some reason, maybe for domestic political reasons at home for Putin, or it's just Lukashenko going off and giving a press conference where he's bragging about being a nuclear power again, kind of. It could be, it could be, you know, sort of a good cop, bad cop, you know, it's like now, now Vladimir Putin looks like the reasonable one. (laughs) And so that, you know, 
I mean, we've done that before, Jim. Yeah, but but it, it goes back to my point. There has to be planning. There has to be a process. You have to show your capability. And that was my point about the technology. I'm not sure it's there. I mean, I mean, Belarus has, you know, so, so how many weapons that aren't, that aren't delivered or future delivery by Russia, um, are they going to be able to share with everybody else that wants to join them if it's their own idea and without Putin's backing? Okay. What are they really saying they're going to do? I, I, I agree with Jeff. I, you know, I, I read through the article too, and it, it sort of gives you a sort of a tangential thought that, well, Putin may have agreed with this, but uh, I don't know. I just, I think this is a lot of bluster to be honest. To me, this is an easy one, though. This is easy. These are tactical nuclear weapons. And the Russians have, you know, they say at least 2,000 up to 6,000. So if I give a few dozen to, you know, if, if I stick a battalion of Iskanders in, you know, in Belarus, that's not a big deal. So I, I have those. Now, strategic weapons, those are a little different. But the tactical ones, I got lots of them. So I want to assert here, though. Uh, so uh, Dmitry Adamski put out an article in Foreign Affairs here um, a couple of weeks ago, 19th of May. Um, and he talks about a couple of interesting things here. He's been a, you know, a student of, of Russian uh, nuclear strategy and politics for a while. Uh, he notes that, uh, that, that Putin and, and Lukashenko may well be you know, sort of exploring their own, their own madman theory. Uh, and, and trying to convince the rest of the world that, you know, just we need to watch out for these guys just because they're, they're just outrageous. But I think some of the things that and he brings up in his piece in Foreign Affairs that I think is very interesting that I think we as America and the West are missing is what's going on in the messaging internal domestically to the Russian people. And that there is a, there is a, a concerted effort by the Putin administration can you call it that the regime uh, to uh, to really begin a conditioning of the of the people? You, of course, you've got uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is completely engaged in this nuclear messaging. Uh, if you go on on YouTube, you can watch an excerpt of a of a music video by uh, by a Russian rock star singing about uh, you know the the beauty of the Sarmat missile, and it's translated uh, in. Uh, and uh, and how it, it you know should go deep into the American heartland and these sorts of things, and, uh, and, and I think there's a concerted effort right now uh, within uh, the within the borders of Russia by Putin to begin to get the Russian people to think about the possibility of a nuclear exchange at some level, and that you need to be prepared for this, uh, and that it is it is um, uh, you know uh, you know uh, God's will. Uh, if you will, uh, uh, from the Orthodox side of this, uh, to, to, that this could happen, and it is our job to endure. And uh, I think that's very concerning because those are the kinds of things that we talked about in the 60s as war preparation, right? Civil defense activities and these kinds of, of efforts that we in America and in the West feel is provocative. But when the Russians do it, we seem to ignore it. Jeff? Good point. Oh, I, my only comment now is that I think my time is about up. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you should say that because it is that time in the nuclear view where we are, of course, out of time. So I wanted to thank you, Jeff, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. 
Good to see you both. Thanks to you, Curtis, and you, Jim, for joining us. And for you, the listeners, thank you for joining us. And we hope you will join us again on the next episode of The Nuclear View. And, of course, as always, think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's Ask Nids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.